This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. So we're not here to talk about Impossible Landscapes, but that is the first campaign for Delta Green. We're here to talk about how to write your own campaign or run your own campaign. Or I guess if it comes up, how to play in the campaign. You know, so what about campaigns? What have we done? What's what's a campaign, Kevin? I was thinking about this because of the opera book. They loosely, they give you like a, a timeline if you want to run all those adventures with the same characters. But there really doesn't, nothing really ties them together except a little majestic connection. It's backwards. So... Yeah, so you you could argue that's a campaign, but I think to me a campaign is a lot more structured, you know, interconnected adventures or a a long form adventure that has a similar has some sort of a thread, like a narrative thread or like a a single enemy you're investigating. Or it's not just playing the same group of one shots with the same agents. But it could be. That is like one. That's like the like most bare minimum one of just hamstringing a bunch of one shots together and put some downtime in between. Control group has a little bit better of a meta thread in that any of your characters who survived the previous scenarios, you get to play in the last one. That's, That's true. true. And I do like control group. I I really like control group scenarios. Like um, I know, you know, it might not be as much fun to go. Oh wow, Delta Green. That sounds fun. I'd like to join that. But I really like the, you know, the idea of someone being inducted into the program. Like I feel like. It's a good way to start a campaign. Um, it could be at least if um, you know if you do like one big problem and you have characters that are like if this. If there's a there's something in this uh, this one this one location, and uh, this guy's a cop. This guy's a ATF agent assigned to this office. This guy's a firefighter, and they all like respond and they're like the only like survivors of this you know mythos incursion or whatever. <laughs> And then that's your cell for your outlaw game or something like that. What is the difference, I guess, between a campaign and a very long single investigation? Uh, Matt, so I think I think I would draw the line. Like to me, a, a campaign has to be more than just the same players playing together. That's just a, a long running game. Like to me, a a group, yeah, gotta, gotta have, which is fine. You should totally do that. It's awesome. Um, but to me, a campaign is more. It's either wound by like a single narrative. Or, Maybe a single location, but that gets a little funky compared to the just having the same characters doing things. But I think like the easiest way to look at it is like if you're playing, if you have a, if you have four or five adventures you've written and and the 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 enemy in them is all is is you know the uh, the elder things, then that would be a campaign because you're you're figuring stuff out about the elder things, and then you're dealing with them, and then you're maybe stopping them and like you know wiping them off the map or the Karatekia or whatever. Whereas if you just have like a flavor of the month kind of thing. I'm not sure I would call that a campaign so much, but I might have kind of a narrow definition. So, so you're saying like one version of a campaign is like a single group of agents working to stop like a threat that's manifesting in different ways or trying to like unearth what's behind. Like, um, like if the elder things are pulling strings and they're making these different problems happen and each time they gain like a clue about the existence of the elder things and then they find like where they're coming from. Like sort of like a puppet master style campaign. Yeah, yeah, and like it doesn't have to be just one threat. Like they could, you know, they could be, the first game could be a missing person, and at the end they find out they had a connection to these 
things. And then, you know, it's a couple months later, they have a run in with, you know, a cult who has a tangential connection. And then as you start putting the pieces together, you realize that there's something, you know, greater out there. And then you oh, go something like that. With it. You get like one of those, uh, like a cork board for your home game or whatever, like have them put up, you know, strings and threads, like a, like a legit murder board. So what's a, what's a home game? Is that when you play the game and meet space with people? That's hey, not no, a, I wouldn't, not a I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, not at a convention. I've never heard of it. The classic Call of Cthulhu campaign, Masks of Nerlathotep, kind of follows that single adversary format the the format of that is you know go blap some cultists in new york oh they're connected to these guys over in london let's go to london and blap some cultists and oh they're connected to these guys in kenya and you sort of you go around the globe sort of one step behind the crawling chaos each cult is one of the eponymous masks because they all worship different at avatars of the the big guy it was the scenario that established the trope or um what is now considered like the canonical in RPGs element of like every monster being an, an aspect of Nilothothep. I thought it was like uh, also one of the things that led to the creation for Delta Green because people were tired of playing like the bellhop. Like, hey, we're going to go fight some cultists. And the bellhop's like, sure. I, I, I do have an advocate or whatever. Something like yeah. that, yeah. That may yeah. I don't know if that's an idiom or if he was being if he was saying it was literally that scenario, but it did lead to that specific problem. Uh, if I recall correctly, the, that's the that same joke is what led to the Jackson Elias podcast being called that because yeah, why, we're all good friends. Of why Jackson would, Elias, yeah, why okay. is it you would investigate this mystery otherwise? So that gave me a thought. Uh, one of my favorite board games, Elder Tor, and if you played a game of Elder Tor and then you wrote everything down and you translated it into a Delta Green, you know, you wrote it all into Delta Green. That's a campaign. It might be separate. Think, isn't Elder Tor designed to kind of follow? The same kind of styling as Master Mal in the Tip. Yeah, you got it. Like, isn't it? Travel by rail, travel by boat. Yeah, you go yeah, all over the world, putting down little mythos fires. They're little tiny mythos fires, but the yeah, whole yeah. time there's a big one that's popping up too. It's pretty fun. It just takes forever to like put together. Yeah, that's why I like playing online because it takes two seconds. <laughs> so, like, I guess to me that's that's like an idealized campaign because you know one one adventure might be as simple as just blabs and cultists, but one might be as simple as just you know go you know, gather some clues and recruit some allies and like you know become a little more sane for a little while or like training montage but there's still this like thing in the background you're dealing with so has anybody written a campaign for delta green there are none published so no one's run them uh unless they've written it i know max is pretty eponymous when it comes to writing stuff and i've written a couple of things that i would call a campaign I'm, they're like 90 percent finished but that's like all my work so i've done several of uh, collections of scenarios that are set in the same fictional universe, but I don't know. Uh, Tom, would you consider Tome Rod a campaign? I would say it's a mini campaign. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And, and, I'd, I'd agree with that mini campaign. And, yeah. and, and uh, Kevin and Will, you have both run the Starkweather Foundation series. Yeah. What's interesting is that I wrote both of those in concert with uh, Tom, Will, uh, Quintus, and then uh, another one Stole from Russ Payton. Yeah, he has elements of that. Another <laughs> one from another one from me that I never really got. Me, uh, myself, and Tom worked on called Aquitaine Hunger Force, which never really got uh, built out to its full size because it had the handicap of it was a, a framework that had to be 
bolted on to other scenarios because it was supposed to be stuff that was happening in the background. Similar to actually a lot of stuff in the labyrinth. A lot of stuff in the labyrinth is bolt this onto another investigation. Yeah. Uh, Aquitaine Hunger Force is like 90% insert some of these things into other scenarios and eventually it builds to a head with like a, its own dedicated climax. Aquitaine Hunger Force uh, was a scenario of framework that Tom and I worked on because he had the concept of a wizard called a burglar monk, which is a wizard that just tries to hoard magic items and powers and knowledge. And I thought it would be fun to have a cult of these wizards from France, that's why they're called the Aquitaine Hunger Force, that feeds all the treasure that they find to a giant worm that is a child of Nepang the Allfather. And so what happens is that anytime you play a scenario and the players don't find the magic item or don't get the spell book or whatever, or anytime they try to burn everything down and then just run away while the house is on fire, the Aquitaine Hunger Force cultists steal whatever's left. And then at the end, you have to fight or somehow dismantle a death cult of powerful wizards who have hoarded all the magic and special items that you didn't deal with. So to go back to Starkweather Foundation, is there a difference or is that a campaign or is that just a long scenario with multiple parts? Is there is there a difference between those two things? I think that's where the term mini campaign is useful because I guess in Tomrot and Starkweather Foundation, it's three scenarios, but it's a recurring plot line that you can sort of build outward and build upward. So I think that two to three sessions uh, is a good jumping off point for where it starts to go here into a campaign, but very small. Do the agents get to go home in between the missions? Because that's part of like campaign structure for Delta Green and Minions home scenes. Wait, so you're saying if they get to go home, that's not a campaign? No, no. If they get to go home, I think that makes it more of a campaign because then it's not one long continuous mission. It's several broken up aspects of a mission, you know? What if it's long? What if it's a long mission where you get to go home intermittently? That, I mean, I guess it sounds like a campaign to me. If you get to go home for like a week or two or, you know, however many months or whatever between missions. One of the things I think that makes Tomrot, uh, Something that I wouldn't necessarily design the same way today, at least the parts that I worked on, is that I think the connections between... First of all, it's ba- it's based on like a bunch of, of, of other scenarios, which is fine, because a lot of Arc Dream material is based on games that they actually ran, and the difference here is that you can actually go back and, and play those scenarios as well if you want. But the main, the main thing I think that I would do differently is that I feel like some of the connections between the different parts of Tomrot are a little fragile. Like, there's stuff in there that it feels looking back on it that uh, you wouldn't it, it, you wouldn't necessarily get from scenario one to scenario two and then from two to three unless things played out in a pretty specific way. Because we, I remember correctly, we were kind of writing it as we were running it. It's like playtesting with style, huh? Yeah, I did part. I did uh, part two. I think playtesting with style. That's your no. title. You did. I did part, part one. Quintus did part two, and you did part three. Well, there, there's a good lesson there, which is if you're going to, if you want to sit down and write a campaign, you don't necessarily need to start by writing a 10 adventure arc. Start by doing the first bit and then run it a couple of times, see where it ends up with, and that may give you some inspiration here to the next bit. It's like the classic Dungeons and Dragons trope, trope about you think the camp or you think the dungeon master came up with all of this like in one sitting and wrote it all down. No, it's like ad-libbed like 90% of the time. Yeah. I mean, that's so I, I have a campaign 
that's mostly done. It will definitely be done by Gen Con or else I'm going to get real trouble, which is it's uh, February. That'll be August. So if it's not done in six months, I'm in trouble. Um, five months. Uh, but that I mean, it's fine. It has, it's not like it's taken you six years to finish these scenarios. But, you know, that started as two completely unrelated the adventures that I kind of mashed together and then added a third bit too. Um, I thought I mean, I didn't start those as a campaign. They started as something else. So that's one way to get to a campaign. And what's interesting there is that I'm going to have different players and potentially different characters, but it's going to essentially be three one shots at a con, but I could, you know, someone else could pick it up and run it for their, for one group as a set. I, I don't, um, I don't really write campaigns. I've written a couple of like organization, like uh, antagonist organizations, kind of like labyrinth style. That's meant to be like dismantled over multiple sessions. And I have like suggested like uh, storylines or campaign or uh, scenarios to follow for it. Like, I feel like that is a good way to do it. Just like a organization that you tear down over time. Well, I think it was our first Gen Con interview with Arc Dream. Might have been our second, but I'm pretty sure it was our first in the basement with Glancy. But we, one of us asked him a question about, um, maybe Will with Venture Editing, you can Carat- pull this out. But, so w- w- one of us asked a question along the lines of like, you know, how do you like, what do you do? Because you've written these, you know, these adversaries in, but they're basically these unimpeachable, you know, adversaries that are these, you know, big majestic as this massive organization. How can a, how can a handler ever, just, ever deal with like taking it down? And he said, well, you know, we've always wanted you to like run a five game set of sessions where at the end of it, you've destroyed Saucer Watch or you've taken out the Karatekia because that's fun for your players. In your world, who cares? So like those big things, big bads are designed to be taken down. They're not designed to be insurmountable obstacles, even though they're written like, you know, obstacles. Right. And um, like I tried to design those with um, the Conspiramid in mind. And I think that... Tom, you like Knights Black Agents, and you can probably explain conspiracies better than I can. Yeah, like Knights Black Agents is one of those really uh, formative, influential RPG books for me. So the basic idea is that the conspiracy is the basic campaign structure for Knights Black Agents, where it's literally, I think it's like 15, 20 something boxes, where it's literally all different aspects of the conspiracy from like at the ground level just drug dealers and random minor crimes. And then it goes all the way up to the high council of vampire lords who are running everything behind the shadows. And the whole thing is that each clue is supposed to lead you to a new node in the conspiracy and you fight your way up until you've overthrown the whole thing. That can be a fun take on random monster encounters. Instead of a random monster encounter, you just, you like roll on the conspiracy level. Oh, it's like a backup. Like when backup comes, you have like you can move laterally across the pyramid level for you know support. Yeah, exactly. Like there's, if I'm remembering correctly, it says there these aren't the only types of nodes, but every conspiracy needs three things that should be nodes on there. And the first is the first is blood, which I guess if you're going to translate this to Delta Green, would be some kind of other mythos need. Uh, the second would just be money. How do these people fund themselves? And then the third one is muscle. And typically they have multiple kinds of muscle. Like they'll have gangsters and other criminals for underhanded violence. And then maybe they'll also have the police for state sanctioned violence that can be seen publicly. And maybe they'll also have like a law firm or something else for something that can non-violently uh, obstruct the players. 
Right. Just different, uh, basically like different arms of the organization. And uh, when you take take it off, you eventually get to the head. Right, exactly. And that's part of the fun of moving up the conspiracy is that when you take these nodes out, then the conspiracy can't do that anymore, that you've taken away something that they could have hit you with before. Is the point of order, that's where the phrase, everything comes to a head comes from. It's actually from the conspiracy design. I thought it was going to be like, uh, you know, cut the snake off the head or whatever. Yeah, cut the snake off the head. Cut off the snake. Oh, God damn it. (laughs) So, Will, I think you've kind of skirted around an interesting point. Um, A lot of the time on this podcast, we talk about how there's a bunch of interesting mechanics in the Delta Green world. Maybe not interesting. Mechanics that don't get interacted with because most of our games are one-shotty open table style play so we rarely have a chance to engage with the uh longer form um procurements of things and like calling it for backup and that kind of thing but in a campaign you get to do all that yeah uh there's a lot more the the, those sorts of mechanics like the bonds like um uh requisitions um studying tome that kind of stuff actual research that kind of thing We've touched on this before, but in a long-form campaign, there's a lot more freedom to explore those those elements of the investigation. Uh, because in a long-form campaign, if you use, for instance, the same... Ex- if, you, if you take a lot of sick time uh, away from work to go do this investigation with this Jackson Elias guy, or his friends at any rate, um, then... You know, eventually you're, you're, that, you're gonna, yeah, that bond's going to start decaying and your employer's going to be like, you're taking a lot of sick days lately. Yeah, we can't seem to reach you at home. How strange. Yeah, you're going to like, like getting caught and having to face the consequences there. Uh, yeah, flashing your badge really three yeah. states away when you're supposed to be at home with the flu. Yeah, that that is an example of a conse- of something that can occur in a, a single one-off mission, but actually has consequences in an ongoing investigation. I've thought about that. Like, um, look up like however much sick time you get annually from like working as a FBI agent or something like that. And if you're running like a long-form campaign, like subtract one day, you know, subtract another day. And like when you run out of sick leave, your boss is like. You got to come in. You guys know how much I love bookkeeping and spreadsheets. Totally. 100%. 100% unironically. Well, there you go. And like track vacation hours and all that too. I think that's one of those things that like the older Delta Green was more good at, was more better at, was better at. Um, because nowadays it's much easier to get your FBI guy just assigned there by the, by the program so that you have a legitimate cover. But definitely in like an, an outlaw game or an older game, or if you just want to have that kind of game, be fun to do i've basically I've, I've gone back and forth on this over the years but my my viewpoint now is that you need to get the agents into the scenario as fast as possible because the fun stuff is in there you just got to get through like the part where they ask the first npc they run into every question they can think of before they even see the crime scene and so that for me means worrying less about vacation days. And I understand that that takes away from like the choice and consequence aspect where it's about destroying your home life, but I would rather have fun things happen. See, I think like if you're in a long form campaign, the focus can be on the players more so than on the scenario. Sometimes like you can really yeah. just hit home on the bonds and like, they should be like fully developed characters by the time that you reduce the score to zero. And yeah. And then like, it just makes it more impactful, I think, when you uh, when you lose them. Then developing bonds as like fully fleshed out characters is definitely an angle that you 
have a lot more with from both sides of the GM screen than a longer form investigation. Something in fact, you can in a long form investigation you can do like whole sessions of nothing but just just downtime. Which actually like like you really need that sometimes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Something I've thought about doing so I I tend to like in a role playing game when the players get a little bit of a say in the narrative. And it's not as easy in Delta Green as it is in something like Star Wars or Stars Without Number or whatever. Um, but you can kind of have some fun with bonds when, you know, if somebody loses a point of a bond, you know, get them to either either explain what they're doing, like how does your bond actually suffer, or like tell me one fact about your bond or tell me about a moment your character share with your bond before, like make them as they like ablatively destroy their bonds, build those characters up into like real not necessarily flesh out characters in terms of stats, but just like experiences and feelings. That's so sad. Yeah, it could be interesting. I've, I've told it that. I just think I had really never run. I have never ran a Delta Green campaign. I mean, although I'd like to, I just don't have a group that it would work for. So a lot of this is just theory. I uh, I had a group at home for a little while, but then we uh, we had to stop playing. But it was um, really nice to have like the same reoccurring cast of characters and then like tying the bonds into the missions um the one time i did it it was uh ladybug ladybug flyaway home which is the one that's about like a passover angel and of course if you recall like uh in the passover it was the firstborn kids that um god was killing or whatever and like when you look at a person's bond sheet if they don't have any other siblings that makes (laughs) them the firstborn (laughs) yes it does and if they have a bond that's uh, another, you know, older or younger sibling, then that person's going to die and like it just made the stakes that much higher. Oof. So like you can kind of use bonds in a long form campaign in that way. Or like if your agent gets burned and like the organization that the campaign is about, like figures out who they are, then you can target them and turn it into like a... Um, like, I think, was it Clear and Present Danger? No, it's uh, Patriot Games where they uh, oh, they come yeah. they come after his his wife and his kids at his house, the IRA does. Yeah, and there's also like a member of British royalty there, I think. Yeah, yeah. So any advice for um, players who are playing in a campaign? I, I guess especially if they're used to playing in a bunch of one-shots or maybe, or maybe they're just either they're just a bunch of one-shots or maybe they're used to playing in like a long form Dungeons and Dragons campaign. Like, what? How can they make this the? How can they make it better in a Delta Green campaign? So you're saying, like, how can players make it better? Yeah, what can players do? They're not just along for the ride. I hope. Um, like I said, uh, the bonds are the bonds are supposed to belong to the players. So like, they need to flesh those out. I think like have like you can you can have a bond and like maybe you don't have it figured out yet, but then like it comes up in play. And you need to develop that more. Like, um, you know, you can have it like my mom or whatever. But then, like, during play, it'll come out my mom, who is an epidemiologist. And then, like, just make more stuff up about it and, like, call them and uh, just develop that part of the game a little bit more because the GM already has enough stuff on their plate. Um, If it's a campaign, and this is pretty critical for players in any RPG, take notes. Like yeah, take, taking notes is like the best way to show the person running the game that you give a shit. And it's also a way for you to keep track of things that, you know, you know, your known knowns and your known unknowns. Yeah. yeah. It's really hard to keep all that stuff in your head. 
um, of like all the clues you found in the last four hour block a week ago or sometimes two or three weeks ago. And honestly, no, I would never expect a player to be able to keep all of that in their head like as as though they were actually because for these characters it hasn't been three weeks of real life between the investigation for these characters like they're there they're in the thick of it so keeping notes really helps you keep uh, on top of as a player on top of the clues you found the leads you have the ones you've exhausted what is going on and getting back into the same headspace that you were a week or two weeks ago and the the master level of taking notes is making a uh, making a conspiracy, you know, murder corkboard. Yes. Like, do we just need to get you a murder corkboard? I want I feel, one. I feel like I'll it put it over. I'll put it, I'll put it over my uh, my computer. You I've know? got one. My players just don't use it. I mean, I put stuff handouts on there, and they they, they use that. I had but one. I've, person i think it might have been i think it might have been carl from the brigador server when the one the one game of mine he played he had some kind of online uh oh yeah that's a cool thing corkboard software like a web page that everyone could put stuff on and after i, I was I fin- after we were finished I, w- I was looking i was like wow this makes this scenario seem way better than it actually was this is yeah. really cool it, it yeah. looks like there's an intricate web of knowledge here instead of just shit that happened yeah, Fincher used it over on NATO for... It was going to be used for Arizoinks, my cartel thing. I've done the corkboard thing a couple of times. I think I did a corkboard for uh, your playtest, Max, of who killed the case officer. Of course, that was less of a corkboard web and more just like two nodes for each of the two agents and then a bunch of links going back and oh. forth between them. That's called, yeah. It's called Padlet for anyone that wants to use it at home. Oh, nice. Put a link uh, let's, here. We're not sponsored by them, but uh, we could be. Back to the question at hand. How can players make a campaign better? We already said take notes. We said develop your bonds. I guess if specifically for players who are used to doing the one shot stuff um, or you know, used to playing Delta Green infrequently with different characters, just really figure out like what your character's motivations are. You know, a one shot, and they matter, but they don't matter, right? For, for most people. But get invested because it's if your character is going to die on the fifth, you know, five, the fifth adventure out of five in a massive campaign, you want that death to feel just earned by everybody. If your character is this beloved, retired, you know, um, you know, if your character is this beloved, retired park ranger and he's been doing good the whole time, and then you know he puts his life on the line to save the rest of the team and, and dies doing it, that's awesome. Whereas if you haven't put any effort into the character, then you don't you don't really get to earn that death. Because Delta Green, like, if my character dies in, like, Dungeons Dragons, I will never find that good. But I've had some pretty good deaths in Delta Green. That's pretty bullshit deaths, too, but we went over this. But I've had some pretty good deaths in Delta Green that were, like, earned. So try to earn your death. Wait, what's that? There's, like, a phrase in a movie. It's, like, a, a good death or something. I can't remember what it is well, now. The last, the last line in Saving Private Ryan. Uh, yeah, I think that's it, yeah. One of, uh, another, you know, very acceptable time for a man to cry. If you don't, something's wrong with you. What else I guess, you got? So I, I guess, like by saying like earn that, what I mean is like take take an active role in the whole you know, campaign and adventure because it'll be better for everybody rather than just going at it as a series of one shots. I think most people, when they run a campaign for any game, are not running something that they're going to write up and publish. They're just going to do maybe one published module and then do a bunch of stuff that they find interesting based on that. And that's how the old Delta Green was. Like, Dead Letter was intended to be the start of a campaign that you wrote yourself to fight Nazis, or Convergence and New Age were ones that you were supposed to be using as a springboard to fighting Majestic. The only time that I've ever actually written a campaign for a game 
where you play roles, otherwise known as an RPG, was uh, an Eclipse Phase group that I was part of. And that didn't start as a campaign. That started as, well, it started as a mini campaign. And then we went off and did some other stuff. And there were some recurring characters. And then we did this for about a year. And then I kind of sat down. I was like, all right, I want to see if there's some kind of common thread I can use. Because there's, there's a cool plot element from this first little arc investigation we did. There's a couple of cool plot elements from these other ones. There's this one loose end that we left from Millionaire Echo where everybody fucking died. And it was hilarious. I wonder if there's a way I could tie this all together. And I found a way to tie them all together in such a way that to an outside observer, it would look as though someone had planned this from the very beginning. And I was really proud of that. So, yeah. And then I think it took was about three or four sessions to run the end game and uh, tie everything up in a really cool way that essentially avoided any future attempts to play Eclipse Phase in that, <laughs> in that little universe. I ran a Eclipse Phase campaign once, and it disappeared because... Well, you know, this it disappeared partly because playing games by text is just really fucking... Like, takes a long time. Oh, God. But then Never also, again. the other the other reason it came apart is that I was running a campaign written by someone else that had no ending. Yeah. Well, we, we kind of got pretty close to a conclusion in that one. Yeah, you basically did all you could on Mars, and then you had to transition to fucking up some other planet, but we, we had to stop before you got there. Yeah. We we essentially like reached the solution point. We just hadn't actually gone through the motions. Yeah. So those are my thoughts on campaign writing. Uh, yeah. Alt- alternative method from the conspiracy building from the top down. Just run a bunch of short investigations and then retroactively tie them together. I call this one the Chris Carter method. Except actually, it's it's good. Hey, so uh, the other day, uh, I'm in an ArcGIS online class. I'm learning how to hold use... On, uh, hold on, You're in a what class? ArcGIS online. ArcGIS online, I remember okay. that one. Let's, yeah. let's just... What's the company that provides that service? Uh, Esri. That's interesting. So you said Esri, but not ArcGIS. A lot of people Kevin, say... Kevin, it's ESRI. pronounced Arc, Arc, ArcGIS. I usually hear people say ESRI and I want to strangle them. No, it's Esri because it's the same as the name of the uh, the Trill symbiont who gets like uh, forcibly implanted with the symbiont against her will. Look, if Jack Dangerman can pronounce it Esri, everyone else can pronounce it Esri. Anyway, sorry. I you, don't what know you? what either of these things are. Will so, ArcGIS is a is a map making software that um, is provided by a company called Esri, and if you have ever looked at like an interactive map of some data on the internet, it was probably made using that platform. Yeah, I'll show you uh, my final project when I'm done with it. Is this the final project you have to put into a PDF and then scan a picture yeah, of and then print yeah, out? Yeah, let's not talk about Oh my that. god, you make me... <laughs> honestly, that's so egregious. I almost want to like we're, redo we're like, it for we're like you three layers deep and host like, it properly because it's that's such a terrible workflow. Anyway. Last last semester, my, my professor made me do an assignment, but I had to type it up in WordPad and then put take the what I typed into WordPad, put it into Excel, and then run it. I, I, it was just like three or four steps when we could have just gone straight through it. Anyways, um, um, I'm, a, I'm a baby cartographer, and I'm learning how to do maps online. And my head is just like swimming full of 
you know, different ways that I can you know, manipulate and utilize this program to maybe make some maps for Delta Green. And we happen to have someone on the show who has done maps for Delta Green in the past. And, in uh, ArcGIS sometimes. And, some um, of the Delta Green maps, for, or some of the ArcGIS maps are geo-referenceable, and some are not. Which side of the page do you put North on? I mean, North goes up unless there's a compelling reason for it not to be up. Such Which is that I couldn't of, fit it. You know, recently I learned that it used to be uh, like the map Columbus used east was up because it was the unexplored area. Or uh, yeah, it was well, like that was that was more of like what they were not sure of. Today I learned that uh, Christopher Columbus drew the maps for Gen Con. <laughs> um, but anyways, this is just a topic I wanted to explore: was uh, locations and maybe maps in. Delta Green, so I was wondering if you guys had anything uh, you wanted to discuss about this. Um, I've started this when I when I heard that you wanted to do this topic. I had a very negative opinion of doing real locations because every time I do them, it's just unnecessary work. But th- because it rarely added anything and mostly just added an opportunity for people to complain that it didn't accurately capture the verisimilitude of their hometown or whatever. But then the more I thought about it, the more I thought about how many scenarios use locations and are actually fun. Like every historical scenario uses uh, a location that is decided, is either based on a real world place or is straight up a real world place. And all of us have written scenarios that use real-world locations, and any anything that you write based on a news article about a specific place will use that location usually. Well, it's worth there's there's two ways to go about it too. Because you can you can if you if you want to if you set your scenario on a real life location, then you have a ready-made map available. You could just take a real map of that area, put up you know put a key you know put the locations where you want them to be, and you're done. But if you don't want to set it in that location, if you want to set it in, like Max, I know you've done, as um, you did a scenario that was like set it in a generic university, you can also take a real university, strip some of the, file some of the serial numbers off and create like a generic university map for the scenario to give players, a, you know, a, a, an aid. It's just like, that's an extra step. So like one of the one of the reasons I like to set things in real places is because I don't want to take that extra step. So that's a is a double edged sword. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about two different things. One, you you nip all those circular conversations in the bud where you say, okay, it's a two story motel. You see a parking lot up front and like a Denny's there, and then one of the players you know doesn't understand. And they're like, well, I want to go into the Denny's and sneak into the hotel, and you go, no, it's not connected. I thought it was all those like. All those problems are gone when you just drop a map in front of somebody, and mostly, and you say, "Here's what's here." Right, and then if there's a question, nice. you can just draw on the map and adjudicate it. Be like, yeah. "There's actually a ten foot wall right here, so you can't see your whatever." So the, the problem with that is the, the, the double edged swordness of that is when the players find something in the map you didn't anticipate. So they go a block over and find an awesome sniper perch and set up there. You need to be able to roll that punch and be like, well, I wasn't planning on letting them shoot into the compound, but now they can, so I got to make sure I'm okay with that. Be aware of that. Do you find that a desire to have maps of things has led you towards setting scenarios and locations that you can find floor plans and references for? It used to. Um, I've got a. I mean, I'm I'm the wrong person to ask. I'm curious what other people think in, on the show because I've got a pretty good workflow for just 
getting up on floor plan as needed. You know, especially when it's based off of a you know uh, badly scanned drawing from an old Call of Duty scenario. Yeah, no, uh, a bunch of the older scenarios do have floor plans, and some of the floor plans are really poorly done. There's a YouTuber, Seth Wachowski, who described a floor plan for a jazz club for like a Call of Cthulhu scenario where the bathroom was behind the stage where musicians perform. <laughs> that is so dumb. That makes me wonder if that's actually based on a real building. Like maybe the guy who wrote <laughs> yeah, that yeah, right? actually went to a, to like a hole in the wall, you know, indie music club somewhere where it actually the bathroom was actually up on stage. All of the original stories in that, that Delta Green is based off of were based on real places, like the uh, the reservoir where the that flooded the place that the Colorado space landed was based on a real flooded reservoir that flooded some rural towns in the countryside of Lovecraft Country. And similarly, um, he makes a big deal in uh, I think it's Haunter of the Dark. I don't remember about this church that's been converted into a, a dance club and there's there's a lot of these landmarks that that keep showing up and even the places that are fictional are all based on real towns that have basically the same landmarks that are just ported over similar to how in delta green you have stuff like the 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 pit in extremophile which is just a recycled version of the butte pit which is a real life landmark yeah i think there's um it feels like there's been a there's kind of a push to not to use real life adjacent things and like rename them but to me, you kind of, if you're going to use something real, but you want to name it something else, you need to like cut it up and make it fit your scenario perfectly. If you're just going to take something like the, the Butte Pit and use it exactly as it is, except call it something different, you rob the scenario of having that ability of someone to say, I want to take this other Overlook Road, or I want to, you know, I want to use this motel that's only a few miles away. All those little things that when agents can like find those in game really ground. I found they really like draw a scenario together and they just feel like they really own it because they're making these cool research decisions and figuring things out. Whereas if you, if you were, if, if you're doing something like you need to create a whole town out of whole cloth or a whole military installation, then you can just, if nothing fits your plan, because there aren't any military installations like the one you have planned, then just take an existing one, you know, chop it up. It's funny, you know, you started this conversation talking about ArcGIS as like the tool for mapping but honestly, Photoshop's a lot better sometimes <laughs> because you're just chopping things up and you know moving things around and making them line up the way you want. And then you have something that's kind of unique, but it still has that grounded in reality feel, but you, it isn't a real place. So we've all, I think we've all written scenarios about things we know, like the our, you know our areas. But we've also all written scenarios about things we don't know in terms of like things where we're not experts in and one thing i noticed or i seem to notice with max maybe because you, you write so many scenarios you have I have, a, I have a big sample size when you write about something you don't know like um you, i know you worked with Te- tetrarch on some irish stuff i believe correct me if i'm wrong you, you bring in somebody who is an expert in that to help with that expertise Am that's I, the that's right? the opposite of how that process went that's not what happened really yeah so <laughs> so all of those Hold scenarios again. all of those scenarios were written by Tetrarch, but he never finished them. So then I came in and said, I like this concept, but it's not done. Is it okay if I take this and complete uh, it? So he Orin libraried it. Well, here's the thing. People always think that they can get me to do the dirty work for them by saying, Oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened? And my response is usually, Yeah, it would. Do it. 
it's only when people like kind of step back and say, you know, this is this is what I got. That's when I start to get excited. So have you ever gone the other way? Have you ever been writing something and realized you wanted someone else's input because they were, were um, knowledgeable and brought them in that way? It has never. Uh, it's it's never. Um, been someone that I specifically sought. It was more that I would have specific questions. For example, in um, the scenario, oh God, what is it called? Lovebug. In Lovebug, the thing that I wanted to, to insert into the scenario was where the headquarters of the Pisces Northern Ireland branch should be. And it's not actually that difficult to think of a, an interesting place to put it or, or well, interesting is the, is the, is the keyword here because it's easy to find like a realistic place because where do you, what do you have in, in Belfast? Well, Belfast was a textile town. So you'd put it in an old linen mill, but that's really boring. And so I said, what's an exciting place to put Pisces Northern Ireland headquarters. And I think it was obtuse who recommended that it be aboard a converted prison ship because the British security forces would use old submarine tenders as prisons for paramilitaries. And so this one was was the same was the same concept except that this one was used by the Pisces Special Forces during the Troubles. So in addition to to being a former prison ship, it also had uh, rumored sealed compartments filled with wizard items in the basement or bilges as they call the basement on the boat. Hmm. That's interesting. So it's funny. I, uh, I had your process wrong. I generally don't do like calls for general advice about how to capture the feel of a place, because if I can't capture the feel of a place, just by thinking about things that interest me personally, I usually don't try. It's one of the reasons why I don't generally tend towards scenarios set in real world areas specifically, unless I already have something I want to do with them. Uh, if you if you have something that excites you about using a particular location, then 90% of the work is done for you. If you don't have something that excites you about a particular location, don't make the scenario set in a particular location. Just Just say it's in you know, the textile mill or it's in the lumber yard or it's in the woods. Yeah, definitely. Don't, don't force the location just without a good reason. Yeah, for sure. I'm I'm surprised to hear you say that because if I'm looking at the run-up for this, you guys were big partisans of like how much value it adds to have a specific location with all this sense of place and so on. Yeah, I think it adds a ton of value. Um, But if you're, if you have a compelling reason not to have, not to add that map, then or error of adding it would make it worse. You know, for example, if you're talking about a motel and you know that, uh, you know, the, or if, you're, if you're talking about, say, a restaurant and you know that if you just pick a restaurant, you know, in downtown, you're going to add, you're probably having to be a shootout there. You don't want people being like, but actually, aren't there people nearby who'd hear it and causing all these, you know, throwing wrenches in a scenario? Then, then don't. I think you get a lot more out of setting it somewhere where you can put a map down, but there's definitely reasons not to. And I think it also, I, I think I, I think I've talked about this generally before, but like there are certain types of handlers who can pivot pretty easily if if they realize that like that things are going in a different direction. Like oh, oh crap, now we're gonna you know my big roof confrontation is gonna work because they they set up a sniper position, or actually yeah, people would hear that now the police are here and my entire you know my entire potential you know railroad is off the tracks and if you're if you're good at dealing with that then great but if you're if you know you're the type of handler who isn't because there are people like that and that's fine that's just some people are just handled like that then you want to minimize chances for your rails to get thrown off 
So be aware of what type of handler you are. When you do pick a real-world location, do you all have a specific process for trying to, you know, research what's cool about it or find ways to make it something that players can engage with? I tend to not... I mean, I tend to pick places I already know about. So I was trying to think, like, if I was running a scenario and I was going to set it, like, in Vatican City, a place I know very little about... um, I would have to spend some time figuring that out, but I, what I would suggest is write the scenario, get the meat of the scenario down first, then get some research on the location to make your scenario work better. But be aware that you might end up having to having to change things, but you may not want to change some things. You may not want to change. So there's kind of you're gonna have to fiddle with things back and forth. I probably wouldn't go on a big research bender without having at least like the outline of the scenario done. Because you're going to get down a bunch of rabbit holes, and you may bloat your scenario really fast. That's that's a big part of it. Is that I just don't generally generally enjoy writing mundane details about locations, like how many chairs the restaurant has. Well, uh, I think that Tom, you shared a method earlier uh, from what was it, Trophy? Uh, yeah, it's just Trophy has this thing called Moments, which are but just like a dozen or more different little moment, little details about the environment that you can drop in anytime it feels like they would be relevant, uh, usually relating to some kind of theme or through line for the scenario. When you first uh, mentioned those in our, in our Discord chat, uh, to me, uh, when you, I thought it was just box text, but like called something else, you know, called something trendy because I know trophies like the new hot game everyone's talking about or whatever. But when you shared an example of the bullet points and um, how evocative it was, that I was like, okay, I, c- I could get behind this because I think that does help to enhance like specific setting scenario things. I'm gonna I'm gonna paste one from uh, an adventure called Castle Gargantua, which is largely not very good, but which has very memorable descriptive texts of exactly this type that can be inserted into randomly into areas. So the, this is a table of atmospheric details for one of the themed areas. This area is the wine themed area, which means that it's inhabited by the cult of Dionysus. My favorite Greek god. Hold on, I have a, I have a d20 on my desk. I'll roll it real quick and see what, what, what evocative moment you guys get. Uh, that 20, so uh, 1d6 skeletons of dead monks. Do you have a d6? Uh, yeah, it is a 3. <laughs> 3 dead monks. I cast Dance Macabre, and I raise them both skills. We now have an undead army. Let's go, boys. An army of three monks. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's, here's the thing. There's a 50% chance of those are giant skeletons. Yeah. So this is a neat idea, because if you don't... If, if, if we're talking about setting up a, your motel, if you don't want to map out and, and do out an entire motel, writing a few things like, uh, you know, TV turned up a little lab, playing porn, you know, a vibrating bed that's stuck on... You know, a bunch of kids running around by a pool. A guy you suspect is selling drugs. Yeah, it gives you some things you can sprinkle in, but doesn't need you to have a whole, you know, backstory for this place. So that moments are a pretty neat, uh, pretty neat idea. And they're also, you know, you could start with these and then realize that you love what you come up with and keep writing more and turn them into a big, like really build out the place. Or you could just leave it at, you know, having 20 moments, 10 moments, and then move on. And it's not like you left it on finish. It's good enough that way. That's kind of what I did in that exact example for Motel California, because there's a bunch of, like, bullshit there that's going on at the motel that's meant to distract agents. And it was just kind of born off of, because 
you think about a cheap motel, what happens there? And I just took those sort of examples and made a whole scenario out of them. So like those little descriptive, I call it descriptive text, box text again, but moments, those are good for building evocative setting details without too much effort. And you'll you'll also find some of these if you play test the scenario a couple of times in in just in playing it, you'll come up with some of these kind of backwardsly. You know, like you'll describe a bunch of kids making noise and running around as a way to get the agents to do something, and you'll go, Oh, do you know, jot it down, add it to the moments list and you have more there. Like just off the top of my head, if you have something that's in a military base, you can uh, walk into the front and there's a plaque from uh, where people used to be in this unit in 2004 and they had a, a pool a, a pool competition and there's like <laughs> the winner's plaque or there's like one of those uh, non-functioning military vehicles sitting outside. Yeah, it's an old can- demilled cannon or something. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, a, a tall barbed wire fence with a sign that says restricted. And that was off of like 20 seconds of thinking about something. So if you're writing a scenario, you can definitely come up with some more moments like that. So in terms of writing what you know versus writing what you don't know or, or you know, using a map, using a map, what's, if you're starting, if you're kind of starting from scratch um, and you have nothing else put down, uh, and you wanted to just, you know, work on getting something creative, where do you start? I'd take the middle ground. Um, what you know, but, like, not specifically. Like, everyone has, like, a concept of what they think a place would be like. Like, if I say the words trailer park, what comes to mind? Yeah, true. And then you can go to Google Maps, and you can type in trailer park, and you can find a trailer park and snip it, and now you have a map. And then from there, you can just kind of loop it. You work the map to find the details that you want. Then you add it to the scenario. Then you go back and you look at the map and just kind of loop it like that. If it's that important, you know, maybe there's like a cult in the trailer park and, you know, certain trailers have something going on. One's a meth lab. I also tend to write what I'm interested in. Like like the reason I wrote Gulf of Time was because I read an incredibly soul-crushing book about the, the battle that takes place. That, that, that the scenario set around the battle of Samar and uh, it was reading it was so evocative because it's a true story and it's awful. Uh, and I was like, it gave me an idea to set something there. And then I found some other elements, put them all together and there you go. Um, but I do bet if I took, if I hooked up with an expert in that field or in world War two naval history, I mean, I know enough. I'm not an expert. I bet I could add a bunch of like moments, abstract details or add a bunch of more evocative things that would like take that scenario from like, you know, if it's like a five or a six now to like a seven or an eight. So you're saying, don't be afraid to ask someone who's more knowledgeable about it than you. Yeah. And also, you know, go outside, um, you know, don't limit yourself to people who know Delta Green because, like, I have a, a fellow of mine who is an expert in old sailing ships, like, top of, near the top of the field, fantastic, and he's also a nerd. Um, but if he didn't know anything about Delta Green, I could still, you know, dredge him for information. Um, and he might actually, if, if he if he's, if he's telling you stuff about something and he thinks it's for, like, a role-playing game, he might be kind of, uh, they might be, like, they might, try, they might try to give you, like, gameplay stuff but you really just want to know like evocative facts and little bits you can add in so it's almost better off if, if you're just talking about it with someone they don't know it's for you know a weird role-playing game scenario you might get more out of it that way i just tell people i'm writing a book i will throw it out there if anyone is writing a coast guard scenario please send me a message i will give you free advice 
Well, this is why it's cool to have the United the Opera server because, you know, you can ask people for advice on things and not have to lie about what you're writing, you know? Yeah, true. <laughs> and there's a pretty good, uh, like, lots of people from different walks of life that have different, you know, knowledge bases there, so. And we'd like more people to come and expand that knowledge base, so. Only if you think like me. <laughs> I guess the last piece of advice I would, I would give to folks writing things is if you're writing something you don't know, don't get bogged in, bogged down the fact that you don't know it. Like just throw a disclaimer at the front. If you feel like you need to, and you know, this is not based off anything real and have a good time with it. And somebody gets mad because your generic university isn't real enough. Tell them to kick rocks. Tell them to write a better one. Kick rocks. Yeah. Get lost. Yeah. Like we know once you're walking away and you're all mad, you're kicking rocks around. Yeah, no, no, I get it. Just that's that, that's good. I've never heard that before. Uh, like, I, 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 I instantly got it, even though I'd never heard. It. That's how you can tell it's a good idiom. Yeah, true. So I have a scenario in my back, my back burner that follows the format of here's a cool location. Let's make a scenario about it. And what I what I did was I I had I kind of went through this process of just going over what I had about it, which was a thread on 4chan by a guy who says, "Here's this island I used to live on." It's really cool and atmospheric and kind of creepy, and here's why. And then just a bunch of photos. And I went over it over and over again to kind of drill down and distill what I was I thought was compelling and interesting about it, and finally try and approach something that made it into a fun and playable RPG scenario. My first attempt was to try and shoehorn the Haster mythos into it, which I, I regretted immediately as soon as I ran it. Which, I mean, that goes back, we've talked before about how you shouldn't feel it's required to staple an existing mythos property onto a cool scenario idea just because it says Delta green in the tin. My original uh, operation spark plug or operation stop Lido was originally a coral nomad scenario and it didn't work for a lot of reasons. And once I stripped that out of it and just made it more generic, it worked a lot better. So definitely don't be afraid to, you know, revamp something or tear something down or you know, yeah. tear it apart. But that's why uh, like I said to me, you know, you gotta play. You gotta play test the scenario because you're gonna find those holes. And on the on the reverse, um, uh, there's a couple that I've written where it was apparent to me almost immediately what the scenario hook was for the the weird thing that was centered on an actual real world location. Like I just I read it and I knew just immediately here's how I'm gonna make this new scenario. Those were a lot easier. Um, f- for instance, uh, the God under the mountain, the one about the cave in the Canadian Rockies. Like, just because of my background as far as how I came to the works of Lovecraft and how I spent my youth on various family vacations, I just happened to know that there's like to, to draw that connection between that particular provincial park and the Burgess Shale and stuff relating to other things that were kicking around in the Precambrian era on Earth in the mythos. It just that was just like an instant connection for me. So that was a lot easier, a lot different. So if you're looking at a cool location that you want to write a thing about, if it doesn't immediately come to you what kind of a weird, unnatural thing to have at that cool atmospheric location, try and, I would say, try and drill down on what it is about that that you want to bring to the experience at your table for your players. And from there, try and kind of build up a hook from the from the ground up. I do want to circle back briefly to something we said earlier which is where i was one because of this terrifying pandemic and two because of the way we live our lives as cave trolls um we run most of our games online so 
using like Google Maps and satellite views and street view and like resources like that is a lot easier online because you can just drop a link in Roll20 or drop a link in your, wherever you're playing and people can kind of explore up and down the block and take a look at things. In person, just be careful that you don't turn the game into everybody stares at their phone trying to find cool stuff about the, the area. You know, just there's a balance between keeping things moving and then the players who aren't currently engaged because they split up or something, the other players doing that research or getting into things. Like, just be aware that that can kind of spiral and watch out for it. It feels like it spirals less online, but then again, online, you don't know if someone's, you know, all tabbed or not. What well, is what it is. Oh, I, I can tell when someone's all tabbed. Huh? I'm all tabbed right now. <laughs> I'm not all tabbed because Discord doesn't, you don't have to alt tab from Discord. You can just click another window. It's not full. Like, you can't, I don't think you can full screen Discord. You can. You can full screen it, but it doesn't make the taskbar go away. You could hide your taskbar or it can be on a monitor with no taskbar. You could lock the taskbar. Lock, lock the, the taskbar. Task oh. God damn it. Should I read <laughs> from the game?